0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So Acts chapter 20, we're on the third journey of Paul, the third great journey narrated in this book. And the multiple journeys get a little confusing, but this third journey, you can really think of this as the Ephesus journey, because that's just about all that Luke talks about on this trip. Last week, we saw the founding of the church in Ephesus, this, this major city on the western part of what's called Turkey today. They call it Asia. And the, we saw Paul went there. He spent three years, probably starting in around 53 or 54 A.D., before being run out of town by essentially a mob, like often happens when Paul plants churches. A mob forms and then he leaves. You know, what, what we're going to see tonight, you know, I mean, Luke is going to take us kind of quickly fast forward through Paul's third missionary journey. He's going to bring us right back to another conversation he's going to have with the leaders of the church at Ephesus again. So we're again focusing on Ephesus. And what you're going to see is a side of Paul that you may not have even known existed before. You know, Paul just seems like the roughest, toughest dude in the history of dudes. He's always on to the next thing, always blazing new trails. But what we see here is we see a different side of him. That he wasn't just a guy that was always on to the next thing, but he also had a real deep tender, gentle side, a concern for the, the, the churches that he planted, and a desire to go back to encourage them, to care for them, to help them along in their growth. He knew how foolish it was to start a group only to have it fizzle out as he was starting the next one. And so he loved these people. What we see here is a shepherd's heart, a shepherd who cares deeply for his flock. You know, ancient shepherding is different than modern shepherding, where sheep are processed at like a warehouse level. You know, ancient shepherding, the, the flock was, was, was like family, and you, you wouldn't kill the sheep until they were, like, really old, okay? Uh, but, you know, the, the sheep, you had to take care of them. That was your livelihood. And what Jesus says is he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is the ultimate good shepherd. He laid down his life for us. But what he says at the end of his life, Jesus, he says, look, do you love me, and if so, shepherd my sheep, love my lambs, care for these people who I'm leaving behind. And so tonight, as we look at the Apostle Paul, we want to try to see if we can learn a thing or two about what it looks like to be a good shepherd. Some things about Christian leadership and Christian ministry. So Acts chapter 20, remember we left him in Ephesus last week. It says, when the uproar was over, what uproar? Well, that was the big mob in the in the amphitheater and Um, Paul took a hint and it says he sent for the believers and he encouraged them so he doesn't just slip out of town. He calls the Christians there at Ephesus together, as many as he can round up that next day, and he encourages them. He doesn't just say goodbye, but he does what Scripture calls, there's a Greek term for this that's actually got a really broad range, it's parakaleo. And you know this can have uh, meaning, like, like our modern encouragement does have a broad range of meaning. This one's even broader. You know, it can have this really tender, merciful, really coming alongside. Someone is just so depressed, and you come and you paracoleto them. You know, someone just feels so discouraged. It's like they can't put one foot in front of the other. They can't take another step, and you paracoleto them. You know, it might, you might just be sitting around after home church talking with someone, a friend of yours, and you notice a trait in them that you want to encourage them on. So you might paracoleto them on what a good listener they are. Or, you know, this might have a real, like, like, you know, pep talk sort of thing. Like a general would parakaleo his troops before a battle. A coach might parakaleo his team. So it's pretty broad. So Paul sends for the believers and he parakaleos them. He's doing whatever he can to urge them to keep going forward. Don't be discouraged by what happened yesterday with that mob. He says, I got to go, but you guys have got to hang in there. Remember everything I taught you. In fact, we're going to see some examples of his parakaleo later on in this chapter. In fact, you know, Paul knows um, how weak people are. You know, God knows how weak we are. You know, he he gave us his Holy Spirit. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the parakletos. It's the noun form of that. So he can, it's like he can directly encourage us. We can come directly to him for encouragement. But he also works through leaders. You know, good, good leaders, good shepherds like Paul aren't just like, just get it together, people. No, he knows people are weak. Even he needs encouragement at times. And he knows how to work with people. He knows how to help, help people along. And if you, want to be good, if you want to be a good shepherd, you're going to need to learn how to encourage. You're going to need to learn how to urge people along. And that's what he does here. He said goodbye, and he left for Macedonia. So Macedonia, it's actually an area northwest of what I've, I'm showing here on my map. That's kind of the northern part of Greece. But before he gets there... If we compare Acts with the epistles, we start to get a little bit more insight into these historical periods. Paul shares about his life at various points in his letters. So I like taking the narrative and the the letters and putting them up against each other. This Ephesus, this is where he wrote 1 Corinthians. He was really worried about the church in Corinth. We talked about this last week. That church was falling apart. He even made a quick visit there. Well, he had sent Titus with 1 Corinthians and he hadn't heard back from him yet. And he was starting to get really worried and so what he, ta- what he writes in the letter, the second letter to the Corinthians, we're going to see he goes up to Troas. Look what he says here in 2 Corinthians 2.12. He says, when I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me. So he's got another open door here, just like he had at Ephesus. What's he going to do? He says, I had to Pass. I had no peace of mind because my dear brother Titus hadn't yet arrived with a report from you. I was so distracted by how you guys were doing, Corinth, that I couldn't even focus on trying to plant this church here, even though I had an open door. And so I said goodbye, and I went on to Macedonia to find Titus. I don't know if Paul is doubting whether he made the right move or not, or if he was just weak and just couldn't couldn't do it. But he moves on from Thrace to Macedonia. This is a time of real anxiety in Paul's life. The pressure of concern for the churches, especially this church of Corinth. Later in 2 Corinthians 7, he again says, when we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. It didn't get any better. We faced conflict from every direction. Battles on the outside, fear on the inside. Luke doesn't narrate any of this for us. But then he says, finally, God, who encourages those who are discouraged encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. Titus finally showed up. He had news from the Corinthians, and it was good news. They responded to his letter. They took Paul's advice, and they opened their hearts back up to him instead of doubting him suspiciously. And Paul sensed a real breakthrough with the Corinthians. And he says, God used that to encourage me. I was so discouraged. I needed, I needed perikaleo right there. And God is the God who encourages the discouraged, and so he encouraged us. By how, well, by how well you Corinthians are doing. And so this is, this is the point in Paul's life when he writes the 2 Corinthians, which we have in our Bibles, sends it back to Corinth, encourages them, and also says, I'm coming to visit. So get ready. I hope it's a good visit, he says. <laughs> well, so, you know, he's, from, he's in trust. He moves up into Macedonia. He gets this letter, maybe, maybe at Philippi. We don't know. But what Luke does tell us is as he went through there, even though he's he's real discouraged, he encouraged the believers in all the towns he passed through. And so we see Paul still other-centered, still pericolating as he goes along, still doing whatever he can to urge these believers along, trying to help people keep going. The ones that were about to quit, the ones that had gotten off track, even the ones who were doing well, he's trying to keep pushing them in the right direction. All these towns he's going through and he's encouraging. The ministry of encouragement. What a, a good task for a good shepherd. It's possible at this point in time, he actually, before he went southwest, it's possible he went northwest. He mentions in the book of Romans, he says, as far as Illyricum, I've preached the gospel of Christ. We don't, I don't know when else he would have gone up to Illyricum. Maybe during this time right here. He may have gone up and done some church planning northwest of there. Regardless, though, he ends up making his way down. Luke says he traveled down to Greece, where he stayed for three months. And that was probably in Corinth over the winter of 56 and 57 AD. And so he spends three months there with the Corinthians. And this is also probably when Paul wrote Romans. He almost certainly wrote Romans from Corinth. And it's this great epistle we have in the New Testament written by Paul during his time there in Corinth. So a lot of the New Testament is really starting to take shape as Paul goes on these journeys. Looks like he's writing longer letters on this trip as well. And he's staying places like Ephesus a lot longer. He says in Romans chapter 15, he tells the Romans about his plans after this, mission, after this third journey. He says, you know, I'm planning to go to Spain. And when I do, I will stop off in Rome. And after I've enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. You get the sense that Paul is trying to get Rome to be kind of his base. He wants to push even further west. He wants to reach the Latin-speaking western portion of the Roman Empire. He's already really permeated a lot of the big cities in the east. And so he's trying to move west, and he's hoping Rome will kind of be like his Antioch that sent him into the Greek part. Rome will be the part that sent him even further west of there. He's also got people like Priscilla and Aquila back at Rome at this time, and uh, they would have been real advocates for him and his ministry. Well, he says, before I come, though, I've got to go to Jerusalem to take a gift to, believer, to the believers there. Just a quick stop in Jerusalem. <laughs> well, Paul, he is going to go to Jerusalem, but he's not making a quick stop. He is going to make it to Rome, but not as soon as he thought, and not in the, the manner he probably thought he was going to get there. It's going to be several years later on a prison ship. That's how he's going to get to Rome. Um, and God will sometimes do this. He'll take our plans and mess with him. <laughs> <laughs> and so he he's going to go back to Jerusalem with a gift. What is this gift? He says the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, that's northern and southern Greece, have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. And so Paul, actually, as he, as he went, even throughout Turkey during this time, during, through Asia, Greece, he's taking up collections. He had even written ahead to the Corinthians and said, hey, make sure you guys set aside money for that, that, that collection we're taking, Remember? These guys gave, these guys gave. You guys should give too. I've been bragging about you. Don't let me down. He kind of figured, look, the, the people, the Christians in Jerusalem are suffer, suffering under extreme poverty right now. doesn't say why. You guys have got some money. He says, look, you guys have benefited spiritually from the Jews here. The scriptures, the, the Jewish Messiah. The, the, Jerusalem is where this all started. He says, you guys have benefited spiritually. You guys should give some money back to them. And they should benefit some financially here. He's like, I, I must, you know, he basically wants equality. And so he, he knew there was tension between the Jews and the, and the Gentile portion of the church. And Paul knew that nothing says unity like showing up with 50K. <laughs> That's a good step toward unity. 50K for the poor there in Jerusalem to show the reality of the faith of these new, these new churches here, the solidarity. And so Paul's taking up this collection. And so that's one of the things he's working on in this third missionary journey. Well, it says he is preparing to sail back to Syria when he discovered a plot by some Jews against his life. So he decided to return through Macedonia. Yeah, so he's getting ready to get on a boat to sail right back to Antioch. And he finds out, apparently, there's some, his Jewish opponents there at Corinth, they had some guys like waiting down there by the docks or even on the boat Maybe trying to get him out in the, in the open waters where they can just dump him overboard, where he can't run away. And so he, he get, catches wind of this and decides, all right, I'm walking back. So he returns through Macedonia, and he's got several guys with him. They were Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea. What, he, he gives the, the location of each of these guys <laughs> Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. Apparently, these were delegates chosen by these churches. They said, look, we're. We're handing over thousands here. We've got to make sure that this gets taken care of properly. And so each, each group sent a representative to make sure so they can testify for this money that's going to go to where it's supposed to go. So Gaius, he's from Derby, And Timothy, from nowhere. <laughs> and and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Trophimus, who's going to be at the center of some controversy, is going to come up in Jerusalem next week. And so those are the Ephesian representatives. And so you got all these guys, and Paul says why he's bringing all these guys. He says explicitly in 2 Corinthians 8.20, we're traveling together to guard against any criticism for the way we're handling this generous gift. If only all Christians would be more transparent with their finances like these guys were. I think the church would be spared a lot of disgrace. So he's got integrity. Also having a big group of guys would have helped if you got mugged. Because having a lot of guys, you can protect them, especially since Luke knew Kung Fu. I'm kidding, actually. (laughs) So they're making their way up through, back through Macedonia. They get to Philippi, and Luke writes, they went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. And so Dr. Luke has rejoined the party. We have another we passage. We talked about these earlier. And they join up just in time for Passover at Philippi. After Passover ended, we boarded a ship in Philippi, in Macedonia, Five days later, joined them in Troas, where we stayed for a week. They spent seven days with the Christians in Troas. And Luke says, on the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share the Lord's Supper. So they got there on a Sunday, and they're finishing up on a Sunday. So this is the last day in Troas. They got to leave the next morning. It says they gathered on the first day of the week. It looks like a lot of Christians met on the first day of the week. Probably in honor of the resurrection of Christ, which happened on a Sunday. Uh, some Christians feel like this is mandatory. Christians have to meet on the first day of the week. There's nothing in Scripture that says that. And there's passages that say seem to indicate say say the opposite of that. Um, also, they probably met in the evening because Sunday was a work day for them. So they wouldn't have been meeting Sunday morning, like a lot of Christians do. They would have met after work, and so they get together for a final block of teaching and discussion with Paul, Well, Paul was preaching to them. And since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking. And he keeps talking and talking. And before you know it, it's midnight. They're crowded into the third floor of this this building. May have been a rich guy's house. May have just been a big apartment that was on the third floor. The upstairs room where we met, Luke tells us, was lighted with many flickering lamps. So you can imagine the scene. It's hot and stuffy in there. They've got these oil lamps with the little flames flickering back and forth back and forth back and forth and it's smoky in there and they didn't have air conditioning or electric lights and all these people are jammed into this room and that you know i mean this would be enough to put a grown man to sleep much less a boy approximately 10 years old who happened to be there at this long teaching service from paul Luke says, as Paul spoke on, there was a young man there named Eutychus whose name means lucky, which is sort of ironic. (laughs) And then he was sitting on the windowsill and he became very drowsy. I'm sure he went over to that window to get some fresh air, thinking what could go wrong? This fresh air will surely keep me awake. And he sits in the window and he's, you know, doing that thing. (laughs) And then it tells us Finally, he fell sound asleep and right out of the window where he dropped three stories to his death below. So, tragedy strikes at what's supposed to be this awesome final meeting with the Apostle Paul. And you can imagine just people going hysterical, but not Paul. He rushed down both flights of stairs. He went down, he takes the little boy up, he bends over him, he embraced him in his arms. Loves this boy. Just like, you know, probably uttering a prayer for his God. Please give him his life back. A lot like the prophet Elijah and Elisha did in the Old Testament. They they embraced these these people and prayed and, and they came back to life. And that's exactly what happens here. Paul then looks up and says, don't worry. He's alive. Paul raises this dude from the dead. The final of eight people raised from the dead in all of scripture. That's right here. And so Paul raises them from the dead. He says, don't worry, he's alive. And then they all went back upstairs and they shared in the Lord's Supper and ate together. I guess they figured now it's a pretty good time for a dinner break. <laughs> it's 30, Eutychus is alive. Who's hungry? <laughs> they had food, they shared in the Lord's Supper. They, it looks like they did these things together a lot of times. And then, um, you know, I mean, it's one in the morning. They're, they're up pretty late. That was, uh, adrenaline's probably pretty high after what just happened. Paul also probably is telling them what he's going to tell the Ephesians later, that he, where he says, this, this is probably the last time I'm ever going to see you. I, I sense bad things in store ahead. And, um, you know, he loved them. They loved him. And this was their final, their final night together. And so they just decided to pull an all-nighter. Paul continued talking to them until dawn. It's a different word than the teaching word from earlier. You get the sense they just were hanging out, you know? Telling stories, talking. There's probably some teaching mixed in. But, um, you know, what we see here is a good shepherd here. He's feeding the sheep with the word of God. But he also knows how to spend time and have some fun with the sheep, too. You know, he's not so hard driving that he never has time to hang out. And good shepherds are able to do both. And this is, this is part of where relationships are formed, where bonds are built. Isn't the hanging out? And also along with the word of God. And you know, that's kind of a good test of a good shepherd. Do you want to hang out with them and sit under their teaching? Can they handle the word? And do they know how to, to work with people? And Paul did. And then he left. He had to leave. Well, it says, Meanwhile, the young man was taken home alive and well, and everyone was greatly encouraged. <laughs> There's our pericleo again. So here's another form of encouragement. What just happened last night with Paul and these, these believers in Troas. Luke says, Paul went by land to Assus, where he had arranged for us to join him while we traveled by ship. So Paul splits up from the rest of the group for a little while. It looks like he walks alone for 20 miles down to Assis. I don't know if he just wanted some time to decompress, if he wanted to pray, but... He gets a little alone time there on this journey, and he meets up with everybody. He joined us there, and we sailed together to Mytilene. The next day, we sailed past the island of Chios, uh, the birthplace of Homer, the the poet and and Greek author. Perhaps you've read his stuff. Iliad, the Odyssey. The following day, we crossed to the island of Samos, birthplace of Pythagoras. Perhaps you've used his theorem. (laughs) And a day later, we arrived at Miletus down here. Miletus. This is a a major port city, maybe 40 miles south of Ephesus. Miletus. Also, if you ever moved to West Virginia and you need a good kid's name, Miletus. Miletus, you get in here. (laughs) So... Why did he Why did he blow right by Ephesus? Well, it says he decided to sail past Ephesus. He didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia. He was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, in time for the festival of Pentecost. So he knew he had tons of enemies at Ephesus. He also knew he had tons of friends at Ephesus. And, and the enemies could delay him for God knows how long if they could get him arrested, if they could get him another, another mob going. His friends also could take some time because they'd want to hang out. They'd, they'd insist that he stay with them. They accept their hospitality. They'd want some teaching. He just didn't have time for that. And so he sails past Ephesus, but he just, he can't pass by without checking in here. He loves these people. And so when, when we landed at Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus and asking them to come and meet him. So this would have taken a couple days to get a messenger there and to get them back down. But he gathers together the leaders of the church at Ephesus, for a farewell address. And what we've got here in Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders is something that's very different from the other speeches he gives in the book of Acts. The other ones, they're they're Paul giving a speech to non-Christians or people that want to kill him. But here, he's giving a speech to Christians. And so we get a little window into what it would have looked like, Paul's ministry of encouragement, Paul's his tender leadership, tender but firm leadership. It reads really a lot like one of the, Paul's letters. It reads a lot like a Second Timothy, for example. It reads a lot like a First Peter, a letter from Peter to some different Christians and leaders. And, and so what we're going to see is just more of Paul's shepherd heart. It says, "'When they arrived, he said to them, "'You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, "'from the first day I came into the province of Asia.' And so a good shepherd is there for the sheep. He's with the sheep. He's there emotionally, and he's there physically. And if, if, we want, if you want to become a good shepherd, you've got to learn how to get in there with people. You can't just be punching the clock in, punching out, keeping people at a distance. God's going to challenge you to allow people in. Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, he says, look, we're well pleased to impart to you, not just the gospel of God, but our very lives both. We gave gave ourselves to you. Christian fellowship, and especially Christian leadership, is no place to play it safe. This is all out fervent love from the heart, and we need God to teach us how to do that. He says, you know, I served the Lord with humility and with tears. We see the the tearful love that he had for them. That's just, he's emotionally present. You might need to you might need to ask God, help me to become more emotionally present in my relationships. Otherwise, people are not going to feel that love by you. You're ignoring a whole aspect of, of our design, the way God has made us, the emotional side of life. He says, it was in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. So 're first back to his suffering. A good shepherd suffers for the sheep. And Jesus even laid down his life... He died for the sheep, and that's really what he calls you to do. To die for the sheep, to die for his people, to give your life away in love. We love because God has first loved us. He says, You know, I haven't hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. I didn't hold back at all. I I didn't just tell you what you wanted to hear. I taught the Word of God to you, I've taught you publicly and from house to house. And so they had big meetings like this. They had little home group meetings, just like we do as well, publicly and house to house. The shepherd was out with the big flock. He also is down in there giving personal attention to the sheep, feeding them the Word of God. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks, they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. He was not prejudiced or racist. He loved people no matter what their background was, no matter what their skin color was, no matter where they were coming from, he loved them. And now, he says, I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. The Spirit is driving me forward. He had a prayer life where he could sense God's Spirit is funneling him down into some, something big in Jerusalem. All I know, he says, that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison is, And hardships are facing me. And so the Holy Spirit is telling him two things, right? It's telling him, you have to go to Jerusalem, and prison and hardships are awaiting for you in Jerusalem. And a good shepherd is willing to, to lay down his life in whatever way God calls him to. You know, some of us are like, we're shocked that God could ever call us into suffering. But that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. We see many times, you know, Jesus. He sends the disciples out on a boat right into a storm. God, why did you send me here? How could you do this? We need to trust that God knows what He's doing. God knew what He was doing in Paul's life. Paul trusted the Lord, and he was willing to follow Him wherever He sent him. You do need to count the cost, though, if you're going to step up and say, "Lord, I want—I want to be a shepherd." I want to love other people like you did. Jesus said, look, pick up your cross. No servant is is greater than his master. No student is greater than his teacher. You've got to be like me. And it's it's inspiring to people when actually they see us willing to lay down our lives. It doesn't drive people away from commitment to Christ, but it drives them toward it. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I don't care. I signed my life over to Jesus Christ long ago. He bought it with his own blood. He says my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Yes, this image of a race that we run. Paul says in his speech at the city in Antioch, he says, you know, John the Baptist, he was running his race, and here's what he did. He, he talks about John. John the Baptist had a race to run. Paul says, I got a race to run too. It's different than John's. It's different than yours. It's different than everybody here in this room. You've got your own race God has marked out for you if you're a Christian here. You need to run it. That's what Paul says he's doing. And I don't compare my race to that guy's race. Just like in the Olympics, the sprinter doesn't compare his race to the marathon runner. You know, those are two very different types of people for two very different types of races. We can't compare. He says, I need to run my race. And hopefully we can say with Paul at the end of our life, like he says in 2 Timothy 4, 7. Hopefully we can say, I've finished the course. I fought the good fight. And now there's waiting for me the crown of righteousness. He says, I just want to finish my race. And I don't know where it's all headed, but I don't need to because I know I'm in God's hands. And I just need to take that next step, that next part that he's revealed to me. That's where I need to go. He says it's the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That's going to be part of all of our races. Testifying about God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. It's interesting. It looks like he actually did make it back to Ephesus in some capacity later, according to 1 Timothy. But at this point, he didn't, didn't seem like he was going to. And it's possible maybe he didn't see any of these guys. Maybe something had happened there. He says, therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. What does he mean there? Well, it's an image from Ezekiel, for example. God says, Ezekiel, you're like a watchman, okay? You're like the guy in the tower looking out for the approaching armies. And he says, if you see an army coming, and you, you, you better warn those people. And if you don't warn them, then their blood is on your head, because you messed up, you dropped the ball. But he says, if you warn them and they ignore you, then that's their responsibility. You've you've done what you can. And if they suffer for ignoring the watchman, then that's their own problem. But he says, you need to warn them. And Paul says, I've told you guys everything God told me to tell you. I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And so he says, I didn't hold back certain parts of the message because they were unpopular because you didn't want to hear them. I taught you the whole thing. That's why we get together in meetings like this and we just read through the book of Acts and we talk a little bit about what's up there because I'm trying to teach you the whole counsel of God, the whole will of God, everything God's revealed in his scripture. That's what we're here to take a look at. It's not about what I have to say. It's about what the scriptures have to say. And then he says, you better keep watch over yourselves. A good shepherd knows he's vulnerable. That he needs to to be a growing leader. That he needs to not be arrogant and think that I could never go astray. That I could never lose it. We need the humility. He says, watch yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Here's that shepherding language. He said, you're not in this leadership position by accident. God has made you an overseer. His Holy Spirit picked you for this job. Why do you think you came to Christ when you did? Why do you think your ministry took the direction that it took? You think that was an accident? You think that was you? I mean, yeah, I guess you had a role to play in this whole thing. It wasn't against your will or in some kind of passive vacuum, but God is the one who causes the growth. He's the one who marks out, your race, your ministry. And he says, you better, you better keep watch over that. You better be a good shepherd. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. There's a good statement for the deity of Christ. The church of God, with he, which he bought with his own blood. How can God have blood? Well, the word became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man and he says, that church, you better take care of her. That's his bride. He paid for that with his own blood. That came at a high price. You know, it's almost like Paul is giving away his daughter in marriage here. He's like, look, I've been raising this girl for 18 years, and now you want to marry her? You better take good care of her. I better not hear of you mistreating her. I better not hear of you neglecting her. I better not hear of you using her, complaining about her, holding her in contempt. What I need to hear is honor and respect and you laying down your life for her. It's bad news when shepherds start complaining about their sheep. God says, that's my wife you're talking about, the bride of Christ. Some Christians don't even have fellowship and you're complaining. Some can't get any ministry and you're complaining. We need to be thankful to God for whatever community he gives us, for whatever ministry he gives us. And we need to do our best to feed and love the sheep, not abuse the sheep, not beat the sheep, not neglect the sheep, not eat the sheep, not try to get the sheep to meet my needs. No, I lay my life down for the sheep. He bought it with his own blood. And that, that's the heart of the gospel. Christ gave his own life for you so you could be part of his flock. So you could come under the, the leadership of the good shepherd. And he says, I know after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. That's about as far as you can get from a shepherd, a savage wolf. Wolves eat the sheep. Shepherds protect the sheep. The sheep. And there's wolves that are going to come in. It's just reality. Let's not be naive. Paul knew this. He's like, the wolves always show up wherever there's a flock. He says, even from among your own number addressing the leadership, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples away after them. Yes, leaders go bad. Shepherds turn bad. He says, watch yourself because wolves, some of you... You might turn from shepherds into wolves. Do you, do you agree that that might be a possibility for you? Is that a little scary? should be at least scary enough to watch yourself, to keep a close eye, not to get arrogant, not to think you're standing, lest you fall. He says men will arise. And it's, you can see the greed here, the ministry greed. They want to draw disciples away. False teachers wanting glory from people, wanting acclaim from people. Often the way people go astray. Pride, the very sin of the devil. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. These shepherds, they're, they're, they're willing to, to warn the sheep, to dis, even to discipline the sheep. That shepherd has a staff, not just to we wolves away. Sometimes the sheep need a little direction too. And some of us, we're so busy trying to be nice that we won't confront in love. It's funny too, because we're trying to avoid conflict, but it often makes the conflict even worse. We're trying not to lose the person, but we often lose them anyway. We think it's because I love them too much to hurt them, but the truth is you don't love enough to hurt them. The right kind of wounds. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Tearful admonition. As he says, I never stopped warning you with tears. You see the truth and the love of the good shepherd. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. He says, I've done all I can. And now I'm just going to set you before God and his word and his grace. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have to hand you over Because I can only do so much. I can't be everywhere at once. Hopefully he's raised his his flock and these under shepherds to take good care of the sheep. And he says, I'm just handing you over now. His grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. He goes back to this again. You yourselves know these hands of mine. They supplied my own needs, the needs of my companions. So Paul didn't just work to meet his own needs, but his, his team. He was working for their needs as well. He was hard at work to not take from the Ephesians, but so he could just give to them. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so the good shepherd teaches his sheep in such a way that the sheep learn to become shepherds. That's, that's where the analogy breaks down a little bit. In real shepherding, that can't happen. Sheep are too dumb. But in Christian leadership kind of shepherding, that's your goal. You want the sheep to become shepherds. That's, that's the end goal. Let's not lose sight of that. We're not trying to create dependence. We're trying to create independence. We're trying to create other-centeredness. We're trying to teach people to love. And if you haven't learned this lesson yet, you might as well learn it now. When you first become a Christian, there's a lot of taking, but that's going to get old real quick. And some people are like, man, I guess this Christianity thing sucks. I guess it's not all it's cracked up to be. And the truth is what God is trying to do is he's trying to teach you to become a giver because you're going to experience way more blessing if you learn to give. People feel, I just feel so needy. I need more people to love me. No, you're going to feel more and more needy. You need to learn to give love out to other people as you receive love from God. And that's how you become a shepherd. You become a giver of love, the love of God to other people. And that's what he taught them. And that's what we need to be teaching one another. Helping one another grow up into the fullness of Christ. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and they prayed together. And this was a powerful, emotional time. They were weeping. They were embracing him. They were kissing him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. This was a farewell speech as far as they knew. And then, they walked him down to the ship and they said farewell. What a powerful time of fellowship and teaching between a shepherd and his flock. Let's just try to just think a little bit about what we've learned here. What have we learned about a good shepherd? A good shepherd is there for the sheep. Paul says, I was with you day and night. You know how I lived. You saw my humility. You saw my tears. He's with the the people at Troas. He's staying up all night. He's going to pay for this tomorrow morning, but he doesn't care because this is just awesome to be there with these people who he loves and who God loves. And he's not just there in body, but absent in, in, in mind and emotion. No, he's there emotionally too. You see the tears. He mentions his tears twice, and then they all break down weeping at the end. This was a guy who was emotionally engaged. He's there in every way for the sheep. This is not ministry from afar, but this is down in there with people. You know, sheep Sheep kind of seem like, in theory, cute and cuddly, like you want to snuggle up to them. But have you ever like been to the petting zoo and seen real sheep? It's not something you really want to cuddle up to. It's It's more something you want to fumigate. (laughs) And you know, people kind of, sometimes they sound like a good idea from afar and then you get in there like, (laughs) oh. But the depth of fulfillment and joy that can only come from relationships because we're in the image of God and God is love. And if you can't learn to love, then what are you? Your Christian life is going to be an empty shell if you can't learn to love. That's what you need to learn. And Paul was in there with people. He knew how to love real people. A good shepherd feeds and protects the sheep. We see him dishing up the word of God to the the people at Troas. We see them. We see him referring back to time and time again when he did that at Ephesus. We see him saying, you better watch yourself. You better watch out for the flock. You better be on guard. We see him doing everything he can to stake out a protective bubble for this church. Good shepherds have strong backbones and soft hearts. They're tough. They know this is spiritual war. And they feed and protect the sheep. They also encourage and admonish the sheep. They're willing to weigh in there. They're willing to parakaleo across the whole range of that word's meaning. And finally, they suffer for the sheep. In fact, Christ calls us to go and die for the sheep. A shepherd must die for his sheep. When we look at this list, if you're not a Christian, I want you to think about this is what Christ has done for you. He is there for you. He wants to be there for you in a way that no person ever can, in a way where he he comes and dwells inside of your heart. He wants to feed you. He wants to protect you. He wants to encourage you. He wants to discipline you. Like the loving father you'd never had. And he has suffered and died for you to purchase you. That's how much you meant to him. And you, he's saying, will you join my flock? Will you in your heart admit your need for forgiveness, admit your need for my blood to pay for your sins? Will you come into a relationship with me? Will Will you turn to God and ask him that in your heart? That's what he wants from you. And if you are a Christian, consider Jesus' final charge to Peter. He said, if you love me, feed my sheep. Tell God, God, I don't want to be a taker anymore. I want to learn what you mean, meant when you said it's better to give than to receive. I want to learn how to become someone who can be a, a, one of your shepherds. And I'm, I'm not much. I got a lot of problems. But I'm going to put myself in your hands. And I want, to allow, I, I want you to teach me to be like Christ to be a good shepherd that's there for people that feeds and protects the flock that encourages and admonishes the flock and learns how to suffer for God's people God you love us so much you are so good to us Lord thank you that you loved us first while we were your enemies you loved us Thanks for how you came out and you, you got the, the one sheep that had wandered away from the flock. You left and you went and got us, Lord. And I pray that we can learn to love like that, that because you loved us, that we would in turn want to love your flock and develop the same priorities and the same heart that you have for people. God, I pray too for anybody here who's not a Christian that they would turn to you, the Good Shepherd and see that you came that we might have life and have it to the fullest. That they would come into relationship with you. they would come under your leadership. That they would join your flock. And that they would experience your goodness, Lord. The goodness of living in relationship with you. Pray to you would call leaders, Lord, out of this group right here. Good shepherds like Paul, like Christ, who want to lay down their lives for other people. Amen.